The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here this morning. We're continuing our study this morning on 1 Thessalonians. Now, I thought we finished chapter 1 last week. But somehow, I just think we need to spend one more week on the end of verse 10. You know, I really had planned, we're done, we're moving on. I was in chapter 2 and I said, wait a second, got to go back and deal with some stuff here. So we want to look at just the final phrase of verse 10 this morning. Yeshua who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now what wrath is it that Yeshua was delivering these Thessalonians from? Well, I think we can see better the answer if we go over to chapter 5 and look at verse 9. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now here we have, we get much more context in chapter 5 on this uh, than we do in chapter 1. And if we back up in this chapter, we can set the tone and see what the context is. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, he is telling us here, it is the wrath, it is the sudden destruction of the day of the Lord. That's the context of the wrath to which the Thessalonians were not appointed. The day of the Lord refers to the return of Christ to judge the apostate Jerusalem and to consummate the new covenant. Now, it is the wrath that is in view both in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9. That's the wrath, the wrath of the day of the Lord, the wrath of the return of Christ, the second coming. So, let me ask you this now. How did the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem at the day of the Lord, affect the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians lived 900 miles from Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem is over here, and Thessalonica is up here. It's about a 900-mile trip. Remember, we don't have cars or planes. We're walking, we're taking boats, we're using horses. That's, that's quite a trip. Now, if a pre-tribulational premillennialist was going to answer this question, they may use 110 as a proof of a pre-tribulation rapture. We're going to escape the wrath. We're going to be raptured up out of here, and that's how we're going to get out of here. To them, that's how the Thessalonians are delivered from wrath. But since we hold to a preterist view of eschatology, and we believe the Lord returned in judgment in AD 70, how do we see them being delivered from wrath? And to answer that, look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, to which you also are suffering. All right, now we already talked about this. The Thessalonians were suffering at the hand of their brothers because of their belief in Christ, because of their Christianity. Now watch what he goes on to say. Since indeed God considers it just to repay 
with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So they're suffering, and he says, listen, God's going to repay with affliction the ones who are afflicting you. So God's going to take care of them. He's going to deal with that and grant relief. In other words, this affliction, this persecution is going to lift who are afflicted. When's this going to happen? He says, when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. So he said, this is going to happen at the second coming of Christ. He says, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Yeshua. All right. Here we see that at the second coming, Yeshua will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Yeshua. This is unbelievers. They were persecuting the believers. And the believing Thessalonians... Now listen to me, they were delivered from the wrath of God that came on the unbelievers and they were delivered from the wrath of their opponents because of the wrath that came on their opponents. You follow me? So not only will the Thessalonians not experience God's wrath against these unbelievers, that wrath itself will free them from affliction. Or we could say it freed them from the wrath of their opponents because their opponents are receiving wrath, so they're not giving it anymore. Now, how did this happen? How did Yeshua's judgment coming on Jerusalem in AD 70 affect these Thessalonians over 900 miles away? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that because we want to try to clear that up. Listen, the Jews were strong opponents of Christianity. We understand that, right? They hated Christianity, and they tried to stop its spread. They even tried to wipe it out. Do you remember Paul? He was on a mission to wipe out the church when God saved him, and he became one of the greatest proponents of Christianity, but he hated it. We saw in Paul's visit to Thessalonica in the very first message we did on here that his visit there caused a riot. In Acts 17, verse 5, it says, But the Jews were jealous. Okay, of these Christians, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, they weren't peaceful protesters, okay? They were mob violence. They were, you know, BLM activists. They're burning stuff. They're tearing things down, okay? They're not putting up with what's going on here. Now, because of this... The brothers in Thessalonica, the Christians, they sent Paul and Silas away. They said, you guys got to leave the city. You guys got to get out of here. They want to kill you. So they sent them away by night, and they go to Berea. Now, Berea is about 50 miles away to the west, okay? And so we read in Acts 17, 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica, all right, he just left Thessalonica, when the Jews from there learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So these Jews hated Christianity so much that they traveled 50 miles to stop anyone who preached it and stop the spread of it. And again, they're not getting in their car. They're not taking a plane. They're either walking or you go on horseback. 
50 miles is a long way to ride a horse, okay? It's a long way to walk. But they are, this is the, the hatred they have. And when God destroyed Jerusalem, He showed the world who His children were, who were the true sons of God, and put Judaism to, to an end, which stopped the persecution. In Romans 8.19, Paul says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. God was going to reveal who His children were. See, the Jews are saying, we're the children of God. And the Christians are saying, no, no, we're the children of God. Those who believe in Messiah. Well, who the sons of God were would be revealed when the Lord returned and destroyed Jerusalem. That would be very clear. Jerusalem's done. The temple's done. Judaism's done. The Christians are the sons of God. Now, with their city and temple destroyed, the Jews were no longer attacking Christians and the persecution backed off. And for the most part, the persecution ended. Now, let me clarify something here. Christians have always been persecuted, always will be persecuted. Paul told Timothy, those who desire to live godly in Christ Yeshua will suffer persecution. It'll always happen. But we're talking specifically about the persecution here that the Jews brought against the Christians, trying to wipe it out. That back to when the temple was destroyed, when Judaism was put down, that ended it throughout the empire. But wait, there's more. Okay? I think that the biggest reason that the wrath against Christianity ended at the second coming was because the spiritual battle ended at the second coming. See, Paul taught the transition saints that they were in a spiritual battle with spiritual beings. Ephesians 6.12 He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now Paul tells these believers at Ephesus that the struggle is not with flesh and blood. Literally, this is blood and flesh. That's not our battle. Paul is saying that their struggle is not with humanity. Although they were dealing with humanity, they were being persecuted. He said, that's not the struggle. It's not with mere human power. So what are they struggling with? Well, he says they're struggling against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. Now listen, we know what he's saying here because we can read. The question is, what's he mean? What's he telling them here? Well, the word rulers here is from the Greek word arche. It has a wide range of meanings. It means chief in a lot of different applications. Chief in time, chief in place, chief in rank. It means beginning. And then the word authorities here is from the Greek exousia, which means power, ability, and privilege. Both of these titles are used of human and spiritual powers. So they don't really tell us all that much But notice the rest of the verse. He says they wrestle against cosmic powers. Now, cosmic powers here is from the Greek word kosmokrator. Mark that down, okay? Because we're coming back to this word, and this this word is significant. You want to hang on. This is the only place it's used in Scripture. But we're going to look at it outside Scripture and help define its meaning here. But the cosmic powers here, kosmokrator which according to Strong's Concordance, this is what Cosmocrator means. A world ruler, an epithet of Satan. 
So Strong sees this as referring to spiritual being, spiritual power. Thayer, in his lexicon, says it means Lord of the world, Prince of this age, the devil and his demons. So they're telling tell you cosmic powers here, cosmic crator, are not humans. This is the only time, like I said, it's used in the New Testament. Well, Paul goes on to say, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So these forces are spiritual, they're not human, and they're in heavenly places, which denotes the spirit realm, the place where Yahweh dwells. So, the first century saints, they're in a spiritual battle with spiritual beings. These spirit beings were fighting against Christ and fighting against the gospel. These spirit beings would empower and provoke people to attack Christianity. That's why he's telling them we're in a spiritual war. We're not fighting flesh and blood. Again, they were fighting humans. Humans were coming against them, but he wants them to know there's a power behind this. All right? They were at war in a spiritual battle. Well, this battle ended in AD 70 with the return of Christ. All right? Now, let me show you this by looking with me at Matthew 24. Now, I think we all know Matthew 24 is, account, is Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. And in this discourse, the Lord is answering the disciples' questions. They come to Him at the beginning of the chapter and they ask Him. They ask Him about the destruction of the temple. When will this be? What's the sign of your presence? What's the sign of the end of the age? They, they connected the end of the age with the destruction of the temple. They understood that. They want to know when's this going to happen. So Yeshua... In Matthew 24, this is so 101, but you have to stress it today, okay? Yeshua in Matthew 24 is talking to His disciples, not talking to you. He's not talking to me. He's talking to His disciples that asked Him the question. He's answering it for them so they would understand because they had the questions. I just want to look at one verse in this discourse, verse 29 of Matthew 24. It says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now, pick up a commentary, read this verse, read what they say. Most commentators understand this and what follows as the end of the world. That's the end of the world. I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? I mean, stars are falling out of the sky. I mean, that must be the end of everything, right? But I want you to notice here the beginning of the verse. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. This shows that he's not speaking of a distant event. He's speaking of something that immediately followed the tribulation that was just mentioned in this chapter, and the tribulation he's referring to is the destruction of Jerusalem, the three and a half year siege and destruction against Jerusalem that happened from 66 to 70 AD. All right, that's immediate. And by the word, by the way, the word immediately here means immediately. Okay? So right after the tribulation, this not 2,000 years later or, later, or more than that, the world will end. No, whatever this is, it happened right after that time. Now, John Gill, who wrote this, by the way, in 1809, okay, he writes this, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, that is, immediately after the distress the Jews would be in through the siege of Jerusalem and the calamities attending it just upon the destruction of that city and the temple in it. With the whole nation of the Jews shall the following things come to pass. 
So back in 1809, John Gill says, okay, this is talking about the tribulation, after the tribulation, what happened to Jerusalem, AD 66 to 70, here's what this is talking about. All right, and here's what he says is going to happen after that. The stars are going to fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now, we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, but if you're not familiar with apocalyptic language of the Tanakh, you're not going to understand what Christ is saying here. The modern reader today says, stars will fall. I know what a star is. They're up there in the sky. Boom. They're still there. We're good. That's how people argue against preterism today. Seriously. I mean, that's the height of their intellectualism to say, the stars are going to fall. They're not falling. So the, and I'm like, boy. Okay. Again, if we're familiar with the first three quarters of our Bible, we would know that this language is common among the prophets for the destruction of a nation, not the world. I want to focus on the last half of verse 29. We see the same language. He says, the stars are going to fall from the heaven, powers of heaven will be shaken. We see the same thing in Revelation 6, 12 through 13. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. And the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. As a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Now, literally, this is saying, okay, these stars are falling to the earth. What would that do to the earth if a star hit it? That would kind of be the end of it, right? That would be the end of the world. But see, here's the problem. The thing that Revelation is talking about is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. That's the book. The book's about God's destruction of Jerusalem because of her covenant violations. Okay? So we have to ask, you read stuff like this and people want to say, well, we got to take that literally. Are the literal stars going to fall from heaven? And many think that's what's going to happen in the end of the world. It's going to be a cosmic collapse, if you will. But I know that this is not talking about literal stars. You say, how do you know that? I know that because everything in this book was said to happen soon. He opened it, chapter 1, with saying two time statements. He closes it with five time statements, all soon, soon, soon. I know that. And so I know that the literal stars are still in the rakia. Okay? They're still there. I can look up and I can see them. That's not what they're talking about here. Well, let's see if we can get an understanding on what the stars refers to then. If it's not referring to the little stars that we see up there, what is this talking about? Well, the word stars is found 51 times in the ESV, which I, I think is one of the better translations out there. Not, but none of them are perfect, okay? Please understand that. Men are involved in every one of them, so they're not perfect. But sometimes the word stars is used of a large number. In other words, you want to say there's a lot. Well, there's as many of the stars of heaven, okay? Deuteronomy 1.10. Yahweh, your God, has multiplied you, speaking of the Jews, behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. There's a lot of you. A lot of stars, a lot of you. So stars are just here referring to literal stars, bright lights in the sky, and it's used of a large number, okay? But the word stars, here's something a lot of people don't get, is used of divine beings, Okay, look at Deuteronomy 4.19. And beware, 
All right, this is dealing with Israel here. We're in Deuteronomy. Beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that Yahweh your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. All right, so when you see the stars, you see the hosts of heaven, don't go bowing down to them. Now, here, the stars, the hosts of heaven, refer to sentient created beings which reside in the heavens. If you're not familiar with the divine council viewpoint, you may be wondering, well, who are these sentient created beings? Who are these? Well, let me try to explain this to you, all right? First of all, let's start out with Yahweh. Yahweh existed from all eternity. Got that? No beginning, no end. Always God existed. Don't think about that too long because you'll get hurt, okay? Because I can't conceive of not having a beginning, all right? But God, when we say God, we're talking about the divine trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Then at a point in time, and we don't really know when, but I know it was before He created the earth, that Yahweh created other gods, other spirit beings. They're lesser than him because he created them. They didn't create anything. He created them. He created these gods to be part of his divine family. He created a family, an angelic a spirit family. And then later he created man to, to be part of his family, a human family. All right, But these gods were part of the divine council. Often we see God in Scripture meeting with these gods to discuss things. We'll talk about that in a minute here. But notice here that these stars have been allotted to the peoples. All right, the word allotted here is the Hebrew halak, which literally means a portion or assigned. Here we are told that Yahweh assigned the stars, these hosts of heaven, these other gods, to non-Israelites. In other words, Israel, you're not to worship them. The nations worship those. You don't do that. Israel's not to worship these gods. Now, speaking of judgment that was to come upon the disobedient Israelites, Moses said this, All the nations will say, Why has Yahweh done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods and worshipped them. In other words, God is angry with Israel because they're serving these other gods. God had taken Israel to... They, he was to be their God. The nations worshipped these other gods. All right? He says, gods whom they had not known and whom He had not allotted to them. Again, the same word, halak. They weren't allotted. Those gods were allotted to the nations. Throughout the Scripture, these gods are called stars. All right? So when you see star, you've got, you got to try to figure out, is it talking about a literal star here? Is it talking about deities? Judges 5.20. From heaven, the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. All right, do you want to think this is literal stars, maybe? I'm not sure how these literal stars fought, but here we have the divine beings. They're fighting for Israel against Sisera. 
Look at Job 38.7. When the morning, now this, this verse here, the previous verses are talking about creation. Okay, God, when God created the world, here's what happened. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So in the creation, before man was created, when God created the world, we have the stars singing together and the sons of God shouting for joy. Stars and sons of God are synonymous, referring to gods, referring to divine council members, divine beings. They're singing together at the creation of the world. Look what God did. Isaiah 14, 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. This is not talking about, you know, literal balls of fire up there. No, he wants to go above the divine beings. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. Now, this passage in Isaiah 14 and the same thing we see in Ezekiel 28 it's a little tricky here, so hang on. These passages are about evil, tyrant kings. This passage in Isaiah is about the king of Babylon. In Ezekiel 28, it's about the king of Tyre. All right? But there, these evil, tyrant kings, pride is described in terms of an ancient story about a divine being who fell from paradise due to rebellion against Yahweh. So he's speaking to these kings, earthly kings, but he's using a story of a divine being that fell. So these accounts, in both of them, they reference Eden directly in Ezekiel's case and indirectly in Isaiah's case. All right, They're talking about Eden. You were there in the garden of God. You walked among the stones. No earthly man did that. Okay? Talking about divine being. Now he says here, the mount of the assembly. This is the home of Yahweh. This is the place... The divine council meets. This is God's house. So this divine being, in his pride, seeks to usurp Yahweh. Okay, I'm going to take over here. I want to be in Yahweh's place. I want to be the head God. Daniel 8.10 says, It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts, and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground, and trampled on them. All right? Not balls of fire here. Talking about divine beings, okay? Being defeated. Look at Jude. Jude 1.13 says, while, he's talking about apostates here, and he says, while waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So Jude is using an allusion here from Enoch. All right? Actually, Jude, this is an illusion, but Jude actually quotes from the book of Enoch. But I want to look at 1 Enoch 8, 80, chapter 80, verses 6 through 8. This is a pseudepigraphal work. This is something that Jews would have been very familiar with. Like I said, Jude quotes this book. So the Jews understood this stuff. It was important to them. So Enoch says, And many chief of the stars shall transgress the order prescribed. And these shall alter their orbits and tasks and not appear at the seasons prescribed for them. And the whole order of the stars shall be concealed from the sinners and thoughts of those on the earth shall err concerning them. And they shall be altered from their ways. Yea, they shall err and take them to be gods. And evil shall be multiplied upon them 
and punishment shall come upon them so as to destroy them all. So the wandering stars that Jude speaks of, that's a common ancient Jewish idiom in both the Tanakh and in the Pseudepigrapha for divine beings. In the ancient world, the stars were called the hosts of heaven. And they were equated with deities. Now, in the Tanakh, the stars of heaven are also called heavenly hosts. In the text in Matthew 24, 29, it says the stars are going to fall from heaven and the powers of heaven. This is talking about the host of heaven. They're the powers that are in heaven. And this phrase, host of heaven, is found 19 times in the ESV. 18 of them refers to divine beings. A good text to help us understand you know, if you're not familiar with the divine council viewpoint, I think First Kings is very helpful in you know showing this. First Kings twenty two nineteen, and Micaiah said, "Therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on the throne. All right, he's in a having a vision, a throne room vision. Sees God on the throne, and watch all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. So here's God." And the hosts of heaven, they're all there. This is a throne room. A throne room scene. The prophets of God had insight into the divine council because they were brought into the council and given instructions. So someone who was a prophet of God had had stood in the council with God. Micaiah is in the throne room. He's seeing this interaction. And here we see the mention of the hosts of heaven, which is Shavah Shemayim. Hosts of heaven, Shabbat Shemayim. It's st- this, this council, these groups, stands before Yahweh. It's a reference to divine being. Now, this host of heaven, they're not just stars in the night sky. You can see these, he's not meeting with a bunch of stars here standing around, balls of gas, so to speak. He's meeting with divine beings. Let me show you this, Nehemiah 9.6. You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all that's on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all, and the host of heaven worships you. Now right, here it says that God creates these beings, and they worship Him. The Shiva Shemayim refers to divine created beings who reside in the heavens. Listen, people, only living beings can worship God. And here these hosts of heaven are worshiping Yahweh. Psalm 29, 1 and 2. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings. So this is a call to the heavenly beings to ascribe to Yahweh. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due His name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. So here are the divine beings. Uh, Heavenly beings, here's Ben-El. They are called upon to worship Yahweh. Psalm 97 tells us this, Yahweh is exalted above all gods. Psalm 97, 9. For you, O Yahweh, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. God created them. He's, of course He's above them. Now, listen to what this verse is saying. Many people say, well, there's no other gods, there's just God. And then Satan, fallen angel, or whatever, you know, okay? But if there are no other gods, then what this verse is saying is, Yahweh, you're far above things that don't exist. How far is that? Yahweh, you're far above nothing, because they're not there. No, that's ridiculous. You're far above these gods. 
There's other gods out there, but Yahweh created those gods. Look at Psalm 135, 5 and 6. For I know that Yahweh is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Now watch what he says next. This is really important. Lord, you're above all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. Why? Because these other gods have no effect on him. They have no control over him. There's nothing they can do. He created. He destroys. He's the God of gods and Lord of lords. And they bow down. They worship him. He's above them, and he does what he pleases. They can't do what they please because Yahweh is above them. But Yahweh can do whatever he pleases because there's nobody that can stay his hand. Now, we see this demonstrated that God is above all gods in Exodus chapter 12. Most people miss this in the Exodus story. Exodus 12, 12. Yahweh says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. You know that every plague that happened in Egypt was against one of their gods? They worshipped Hecht. The frog god. So God said, you like frogs? Here they are. They're everywhere. They're in your bed. They're in your ovens. There's frogs everywhere. God said, how do you like that god? How, how are they doing for you? All these were demonstrations of, of the power of the living God against all these lesser beings. Now, in recounting the Exodus story, in Numbers 33 says this, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom Yahweh had struck down among them, on their gods also Yahweh executed judgment. So he didn't just judge the Egyptians. He brought judgment on their gods. And this showed them, listen, these are the ones you worship? You're worshiping the wrong God. All right, back to 1 Kings. Let's go back into the throne room, throne room here. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne. All the hosts of heaven standing beside him, on his right and on his left. And Yahweh said, Yahweh's talking to these other gods, this council here. Yahweh says, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? In other words, I'd like to kill Ahab. How do we do it? And one said one thing, and another said another thing. So they're discussing this in the council. How are we going to kill Ahab? Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh. So one of these gods comes and he's standing before Yahweh and he says, I'll entice him. And Yahweh said to him, by what means? Well, how are you going to do this? And he said, I'll go out and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. In other words, I'll go and I'll have his prophets lie to him about the battle. So he goes into the battle and he dies. And he said, so Yahweh's talking now, he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do it. Go do it. So this vision seen by Micaiah shows that Yahweh is in complete control of the events. He only approves the course of action that suits his purpose, which in this case was to bring about the death of King Ahab. So we're, in, we're, we're entitled to go into the throne room and see the interaction here of what's going on. All right, back to our text. So in this text in Matthew 24 is about the judgment of the gods that the first century Christians were in a spiritual battle with. That's what he's saying. These stars are going to fall from heaven. The powers of heaven are going to be shattered. If you're familiar with Psalm 82, it also talks about this judgment against these gods. Psalm 82.1 says, 
God has taken his place in the divine council. Again, I love the way the ESV handles this. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. All right. Now, the ESV here has God, and then it has gods. It has it twice. And you know why it does that? Because that's what the Hebrew has. Elohim both times. But if you look at the New American Standard, it translates Elohim the first time as God, and the second time as rulers. Why would you do that? Some translations translate rulers judges. I, I watched somebody this week who was talking about Bible interpretations, and he was saying, you know, some people use judges for Elohim, and, the, and that's because it just means sometimes Elohim can be translated as judges. It has been, but it shouldn't be. Okay? We've talked about this before, but we have to be clear on this. The word Elohim, it's plural for gods, but can be used as a singular. Elohim is a place of residence locator. Okay, simple. It's simple as that. What does that mean? That means if someone's called an Elohim, they're part of the spirit world. They're not part of the natural world. There's one time in Scripture where a man is called an Elohim. Why? He's dead. Samuel. When Samuel came up from the dead, it says, that, I see an Elohim! Why? Because he's not in this world. He's in the spirit world now. So when you see the term Elohim, and it, when it's translated judges in the scripture, that's a bad translation. It's a place of residence locator. I've looked up every use of it. I'm absolutely certain about this. It's talking about divine beings. All right. All right. That's no extra charge for that. Uh, but look at how the, the scripture 2009 translates this. Elohim, okay, it's using the Hebrew word here, just so you don't get confused. Elohim stands in the congregation of El. He judges in the midst of the Elohim. So there you go. Now you've got a literal translation, and you know what the word is. It's both Elohim. Because if you're just reading this in the New American, you're like, he's judging these rulers. Well, maybe it's earthly rulers. No, that's not what it's talking about at all. Look at ESV says he stand, he's in the divine council. New American says, in his own congregation. That, that doesn't really tell us a lot. But I like the way the Scripture put it, the congregation of El. God, El is God, okay? All right, so Psalm 82 closes with this. I said, you are God, Elohim, sons of the Most High, but Elohim, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die, Okay? You're God. So you're gonna, I thought gods couldn't die. Well, when Yahweh says they can die, He created them. He can destroy them. Okay? He says, you will fall like any prince. And then it says, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So Yahweh is saying here that He's going to judge the disobedient gods. He will take away their immortality. The prophet Isaiah tells us their coming punishment of their coming punishment in a couple passages. Let's look at Isaiah 34, 4 through 5. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away. All right, hosts of heaven, divine beings, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from a vine, leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. All right, their hosts are going to fall. He says, now, you got to catch this. His, his sword is going to drink its fill first in the heavens. 
Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom, on the land, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. So like the host of the nations that come against Messiah will be slain, the hosts of heaven who rules these earthly nations are also going to be defeated. The sword wielded by Messiah will drink its fill in the heavens as well as on the earth. We are told in Isaiah 34, 4, the hosts of heaven shall rot away. Rot away here is makak, literally waste away, decay. In Zechariah 14, 12, the same Hebrew root word makak is used to describe the fate of those who come against Jerusalem at the end of the age. So there's a similarity between Isaiah 34 and 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12 that really deserves some attention here. We talked about 2 Peter last week, but I want to try, try to tie this in so you can see what I'm talking about. I got some questions about what I said about elements last week in this, in, in Peter here. 2 Peter 3, 10. Uh, everybody knows this passage, right? The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord, Lord coming against Jerusalem, day of judgment. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Okay, these are the gods, the heavenly bodies. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness? And godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Okay, again, you just read that and you're like, oh, this is the end of the world. Everything's burning up, stars are falling from the sky, everything's burning. But if you are a preterist, you're probably familiar with the Greek word for heavenly bodies here, or elements. Instead of heavenly bodies, a lot of translations have elements here. The elements will melt and burn. And then you have commentators say, well, the elements are the elements of matter. They're going to burn up. Everything's going to burn up. Well, the word here is stoicheion, that is translated here, heavenly bodies or elements. And it's often used to refer to elements of religious training or the ceremonial precepts that are common to the worship of the Jews. So a lot of times stoicheion refers to Jewish teachings, basic Jewish teachings that Judaism is built on. So stoicheion is not about atoms or destruction of a universe. But the Greek word stoicheion, translated elements in 2 Peter 3, is understood by many scholars to refer to heavenly spirits. This understanding can be seen in several passages written by Paul. But before we look at how he used that, I want to see how it's used in the way that most people see it as elements in, in Galatians 4.3 here. It says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's stoicheion. Now, Galatians is focused on the problem of Jewish converts wanting to require Gentile believers to obey the law. You've got to keep the law if you want to be a Christian. Yes, you want to believe in Yeshua, but you also have to keep the law. In Galatians 4, Paul speaks to both Jews and Gentiles. So he could be using the term in different ways with each audience, and I really think that he is. In Galatians 4, 1-7, through he's addressing Jewish converts. He says in verse 5, those who are under the law. That was never Gentiles. That's Jews. 
And he uses stoiheion here in verse 3. Therefore, most likely, this refers to the elements of the law, teachings of Judaism. Hebrews 5.12 uses stoiheion, and it seems also to refer to the principles of the Jewish law. But the Gentiles were never under the Jewish law. They didn't know the true God. Therefore, in Galatians chapter 4, 8 through 11, he begins to address the Gentile converts. And in verse 9, he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be again? So the Gentiles were never enslaved to the law. So what they were enslaved to were these false gods. So in the context of Galatians 4.9, I think stoiheion here is better interpreted as heavenly spirits or astral deities. To the Gentiles, I think stoiheion refers to these astral deities. To the Jews, it often refers to the principles of Judaism. Look at Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So here, stoiheion is used of elements of the cosmos. This is elements of religious training. doesn't really seem to fit here. Let's go on to Colossians 2, 18-20. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the stoicheion, the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you still submit to regulations? So again, the context here, stoiheion, would best fit with heavenly spirits. The Gentiles were worshiping these deities. So, let's go to the dictionary of deities and demons in the Bible. Okay, Quite a fantastic work, not a light work, but you'd be surprised just at how thick this book is because what it deals with is the dictionary. It deals with deities and demons that are in the Bible. And here's what it says about stoiheion. All right. Given the predilection of many people in the Greco-Roman world for astral religious beliefs and practices, it could also be argued that the elements are planetary or other celestial bodies, or the elements refer to spiritual beings, such as angels or demons, who control earthly affairs and determine human destiny. Now, a number of interpreters, perhaps even a majority, have concluded that stoiheion refers to spiritual powers of some sort. The Testament of Solomon, which is a Jewish Christian work, testifies to a belief in star spirits called stoiheia. We see this in uh, the Testament of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. It says, Seven bound spirits appear before Solomon, and reveal their identity. Now here's what the spirits say. We are stoicheia, rulers of the world of darkness. And then we have cosmocrator, tau stokotas. 
All right, so they're saying we are rulers of darkness, and they're using, you remember the word cosmocrator here? Does that ring a bell? We talked about this earlier. It's used in Ephesians 6, only time in the scripture, cosmocrator. Again, remember Strong said it's a world ruler, it's an epitaph of Satan. If we understand the usage of stoiheion by Peter to be the same as Paul in the scripture cited above, we can see that Peter is simply reemphasizing what the prophet Isaiah had said about the fate of the spiritual powers that are aligned against Yahweh. See, this, this passage in Peter is not about the destruction of the earth, it's about the destruction of these gods when the Lord returns, when He judges Jerusalem, He's also judging these gods. Isaiah said, the hosts of heaven will rot away. Their hosts shall fall. Peter says, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. They're talking about the same thing. And we also have an example in early Judaism, where people use Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of the gods. When they dug up Qumran, you're familiar with Qumran, the caves at Qumran, some guys were just walking around throwing rocks. Literally how they found it. And he threw a rock and it went in a cave and he heard something shatter. That's interesting. What, what was that? And they went in and they found all these caves full of these vases with scripts in them. Okay? And so Qumran, we, we learned a lot from what they found at Qumran there. All right? When they dug it up, one of the texts they found was 11Q Melchizedek. 11Q stands for the cave that was found in. The 11th cave but it's called 11Q Melchizedek. And this, this script uses Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of the gods. That's how we understand it. It says this, Is the time of the year of Melchizedek and of his armies, the nation of the holy ones of God, of the rule of judgment, as it is written about him in a song of David who said, now he's quoting Psalm 82, God will stand in the assembly of the gods in the midst of the gods, he judges. This is talking about Christ. He is the one they call Melchizedek. And he's coming with his armies. Now the text goes on, 11Q Melchizedek goes on immediately. And the next line says this. To his aid shall come all the gods of justice. So to aid Yeshua, we have all these gods coming to his aid of Melchizedek, in the destruction of these other spirits, these other gods. So Yahweh is saying here that He will judge the disobedient gods. He will take away their immortality. Jeremiah says something very similar in Jeremiah 10, verse 11. He says, Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, in other words, the gods that aren't Yahweh, okay, shall perish from the earth, and from under the heavens. Okay, they didn't make it. They didn't create anything. God created them. So we see in Psalm 82 that Yahweh reviewed their performance as gods, and He judges them for their unjust rule. He condemns them. And in Psalm 82, 8, it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Now let me ask you something. Who is God here? Who is it referring to? Who is the judge to judge the disobedient gods of the earth? Well, here's what's interesting. In the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, arise here is the word anistemi. Anistemi is the term used in the New Testament every time for the resurrection. So he's saying, arise, 
be resurrected. Peter uses this word, anisteme, in Acts chapter 2, where he says, this Yeshua God, rise up. And of that we are all witnesses. So it is referring to Yeshua here. He is going to rise And it says, Arise, O God. This is a reference to the resurrected Christ. He is the God who arises and judges the earth. Now listen, when Christ was on earth, it was clear to the demons that their end was near. When He showed up, they said, Oh man, we're in trouble. Christ is here. All right? Mark 1.24 But what have you to do with us, Yeshua? This is a demon talking. Yeshua of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Oh, so the demons knew him. There's no question there. I mean, a lot of his followers didn't even catch on, but the demons knew who he was. He understood that Yeshua had come to destroy them. They knew what was going on. All right, let me take a little quick sidebar here. Can you tell me what a demon is and where they come from? Biblically? Biblically? <laughs> that's why I th- that's why that's why I threw that biblically in there. Okay, listen. Many theologians and Bible teachers have traditionally taught that demons are fallen angels. Uh, that's the Bible doesn't teach that. All right, the Bible never offers a point blank explanation from where demons come from. So where'd they come from? But wait a minute, the Dead Sea Scrolls say they're bastard spirits. The biblical text, read in its ancient context, tells us that demons are the disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim. And who are the Nephilim? The Nephilim are the products of the watchers mating with human women. Alright, so they make this hybrid God-demon person. So the demons are second generation divine beings. Where do we get this from? We get it from Enoch, okay? Enoch 15, 8 through 10 says, And now the giants, okay, the giants are the Nephilim, who are produced from spirits and flesh, because the gods from heaven, Genesis 6, came down and mated with human women. They married them. They had an offspring. This offspring was giants. They were Nephilim. They're half human, half divine. They shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies. In other words, when these Nephilim die, they're half human, half God, so the human part dies, the God part still lives on, all right? So that's where demons come from. Because they are born from men and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on the earth, and evil spirits they shall be called. So this second temple literature, here's what I want you to understand. You know, I quote Enoch to people like, that's not the Bible. I'm not saying it's the Bible. But here's what I am saying. Everybody who wrote the Bible was very familiar with these texts. And a lot of things they came, came from out of these texts. Like I said, Peter quotes Enoch, so does Jude. They must have thought something about it if they're quoting from these books. All right, this, these books form the mind, the thinking of the people who wrote the Bible. So it's important that we understand. The more we understand that, the more we understand their thinking, we understand what they're saying. So nothing is said in the Bible about the origin of demons, but there's a lot said in the Bible about their destruction. All right, look at Matthew 8, 
28 and 29. And when he came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. No one even tried to go down this road because these demons were there and they knew it, all right? No one passed that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Again, the demons know who he is. Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons understood the mission of Yeshua to destroy them. But they said, they talk here about the time, presumably the time of judgment at the consummation of the ages. So when does this judgment of the gods take place? Well, the psalmist and Paul connect it to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. All right, now follow me here for a minute. 1 Peter 3.22 says this, Who has gone into heaven, speaking of Christ, he's at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, powers, having been made subjected to Him. So Christ is ruling now. He arose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He judged these gods. The nations that Yahweh had given over to these gods are now being reclaimed by Yeshua starting at Pentecost. Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, God says, I'm done with you people. I'm sick of all of you. You can have these other gods. I'm going to start all over, and I'm going to, and in chapter 12, he creates, he calls Abraham and creates Israel. All right? So now we're undoing Babel, and God is going back and reclaiming the nations, and Yeshua is victorious over these gods. Now, if you're thinking, hopefully you are, you're thinking, well, these gods are judged by Yeshua in his resurrection and ascension, then why does Paul tell the Ephesians 30 years after the resurrection and ascension that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood? Because the battle was still happening. See, the victory of Christ over the gods was won at Calvary in His resurrection and ascension. But it was not consummated until the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And that's why Matthew writes, then the stars, immediately after that tribulation, after Jerusalem's destroyed, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be, God's going to, that's it, that's the end of it. The cosmic powers, that's it. That's what happens. They're done. We know that this is speaking again of AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. What began at Pentecost has been completed in the Holocaust, the judgment on Jerusalem. As I said, Babel is reversed. The nations are regathered and ruled by Yahweh. You know, as soon as Yahweh disinherited the nations, the table of nations is given in Genesis 10. He lists 70 nations. And God said, I'm done with you at Babel. I'm sick of you You know, constantly. You won't worship me. You won't obey me. I'm done with you. And in 12, as soon as he calls Abraham, what's he tell Abraham? He says, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All those nations I just said I'm done with, they're going to be blessed because of you, Abraham. And by that, who is the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3? It's Yeshua. He's the seed, singular. So through Yeshua, now all the nations are coming back and being reclaimed by God. In Hebrews 2.5, the author indirectly establishes the rulership of these gods prior to A.D. 70. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. The age to come. They were living in that age, but the age to come, he says, is not going to be under these angels, these gods. 
And by saying that God will not subject the world to come to rulers of angels, the authority implies here that their current world was being ruled by these spirit entities. But that world ended in AD 70. And now we live in the age to come. Satan and his demons have been defeated. The spiritual battle is over. Christ is victorious. The gods who rebelled against Yahweh, they've been judged. And when the spiritual war ended, so did the persecution that was driven by that. Now, as I said, believers are still persecuted. They always will be. But this was a spiritual war. And this was just aimed at these Christians and going at these Christians, everything to shut them up, to snuff them out. But in the midst of all the forces of evil trying to stop the church, it just grew like crazy. Okay? So in the end of 1 Thessalonians, he tells these Thessalonians that Yeshua delivers them from the wrath to come. Meaning, they're not going to experience God's wrath. That's going to come against the unbelievers. That's going to come against the Christ rejectors. They're believers. But that wrath of God also freed them from affliction. We could say it freed them from the wrath of their opponents as it ended the spiritual war. So when he tells the Ephesians that, you know, Yeshua's going to deliver you, and we're going to see as we go through this book that they, they are waiting for the second coming because they know at the second coming this persecution their experience is going to end because God promises it did. We saw that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Believers, Yeshua has delivered all of us from the wrath of God because He bore the wrath for us. But he also delivered us from the attacks of these other gods because he put an end to it. He shut it down. It is over. You don't have to worry about Satan. You don't have to plead the blood or do all these you know, little tricks that people try to do today. You are in Christ. And greater is he that is in you that's in the world. You are victorious over everything if you walk with Christ. Walk in fellowship with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word, Lord. I just pray this was clear. I pray you'd help us to understand, Lord, what the Scripture says about some of these issues. Lord, give us the heart of Bereans. May we search the Scripture to see if these things are so. Lord, I'm asking that your people would not buy this, would not reject this, but that they would study this. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? I think that's pretty clear, right? Everybody got that, right? Yeah? Gary? Uh, so, from whence comes the persecution or whatever today? All the demons are done, Satan's done. Well, one of the things that you know people have a problem with or people don't understand, and let me just make this as clear as I can. Men are evil. That includes women. I'm using men in general. Okay, They're evil. Alright? God said... The heart of man was only evil continually. James says, every man is drawn away, not by a demon, by his own lust. And so because of, you know, when you see someone, and again, we have to understand that if you are a casual Christian and don't make any impact or anything on your culture, you're probably not going to be persecuted at all. Why would you be? But if you're going to stand up against the culture, if you're going to preach the Word of God and stand on the Word of God, Paul told Timothy, all who live godly in Christ, Yeshua, will suffer persecution. So yes, persecution still comes today. But I'm saying, you know, what 
God was promising the Thessalonians was the end of this Judaistic persecution that tried to wipe them out. And here in the States, I mean, we don't really know persecution unless we're really standing up. And even if we really stand up for God, for the most part, we're not going to, you know, get 40 lashes or anything like that probably. We're just going to maybe be disassociated with or people won't socialize with us or whatever, something silly like that. But we just don't. So how does that apply to us today then? If all who live godly will be persecuted, we're not persecuted. Is it just our environment? If are we living godly then? Well, that's the thing. If we're not suffering in persecution, there will be not... Again, persecution as, you know, to us in America would have a totally different meaning than to someone in South Korea or North Korea. Okay, right? To them, persecution, death. All right, to us... Oh, they won't talk to me, or they don't, you know, they won't invite me to dinner. That's that's our persecution, okay? So it's a level of persecution. Yeah, I mean, it's different depending on where you're at, and like I said, and if you really come out and you're standing against, and I don't, you know, if we keep going the way they are, you know, churches will be shut down and persecuted if you say homosexuality is a sin, okay? Hey, wait, wait, you can't do that, all right? And that's why these 50C13 organizations, they got to be careful what they say because they said they agreed not to be political. And that's not political, but they say it's political. That's a Bible issue. That's a sin issue. That's not, a, that's not politics. Mm-hmm. But they will say it's political. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone says... Trying to figure out which one is from what date. Okay. Um, as in Ephesians 6.12, those authorities still at work like planned COVID-19 or just human mimic of Satan, cult DC, Masonic Babylonian design. I, I, I kind of see what you're saying. Uh, but no, listen, I think the scripture teaches the principalities, the powers were destroyed in the coming of Christ at AD 70. Okay, their whole purpose was to stop the redemption of Christ for his people. They can't do that now. It's when the Lord returned, salvation was complete. That was it. So they're, you know, again, people see evil people and they think, see, it's got to be Satan. Again, the heart of man is only evil. You know, I guess I just got to say, you don't know yourself if you think men are not evil. Okay? You just don't know yourself. I mean, if I didn't understand Scripture the way I do, there's times I would think I'm not a Christian. Because I'm thinking, how do I even have those kind of thoughts? You know? But it's because it's evil. And men are evil. And they'll do all kinds of evil things. And here's what you want to really see man and his evil. Put him in power and give him money. Okay? That's all you got to do. Just look at DC. Okay? I mean, if I was going to believe in demons today, I'd say, well, they're meeting in DC right now. Okay? And those people are about as evil as you can get. I believe that with all my heart. They're just evil because they just power and money. And it just corrupts people terribly, you know? And so, yeah, there's a lot of evil going on. But I'm not going to say that's the devil doing that. Because Scripture tells me the devil was defeated, 
You know, the Bible says that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Was, he, was Christ a failure in his mission? No. He's absolutely victorious. Uh, someone says, when Josephus talks about the destruction of the temple, he writes that eyewitness said they heard a voice of more than a mortal tone saying, let us remove from hence, speaking of leaving the temple. Do you think these were demonic spirits that had overtaken and occupied the temple prior to its destruction? No, because I think if it was demonic spirits, <laughs> they'd have been destroyed in the temple. They weren't, they're not going to run from that. There were, Josephus records physical visions Josephus, who was a Jew, during the war he defected and went over to the Roman side, became a historian. He was taking notes during the war. But he says when the temple was destroyed, he saw chariots. People saw this vision of chariots and, and spirit beings circling and, you know, in the sky. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, he writes on that too, saying they saw these things in the heavens. Okay? I wasn't there, I don't know, but you know, a lot of people question Josephus as a historian. He's got a tendency to be evangelical, you know, embellish things a little bit maybe, but um, you know, like I said, there's it's not just one, there's several. There's several witnesses to that. Uh, Maggie asks, if stars in the world used to reference gods, does that bring a different meaning to the stars of the Magi followed at Christ's birth? I don't think so. Again, I think that there's literal stars, and God used the literal stars, you know, to teach man. And I think they probably followed a literal star. Not was it not a physical star like we think of, or perhaps I think it was. I think they were physical manifestations that they followed. These were magi; they knew how to read the sky, and God was teaching them. And there's a lot. In, we'll talk more about this whole idea of the stars and the gospel and the stars. Uh, yeah. Is there proof we can point to that will make Christians believe that the devil and his demons are destroyed? <laughs> no, I think we're fighting an uphill battle here because you just look at how evil men are and they say that's got to be the demons, right? Is there a difference we could see between the pre-Christian world that we can, that we can show? Uh, I don't know, but, you know, again, we're, we're subject to what's written about history and what was happening back then. But you read the encounters of Yeshua. Okay, you read about these demons, they couldn't put chains on them, they couldn't bind them, they were stronger, they were just breaking things apart, they were doing all these things. Do you see people doing that today? I don't, okay? Now, I know I've heard from people on foreign soil, we've seen it over here, and I'm like, that's interesting. The demons only go to third world countries. Why? Are we too smart for them? I don't understand that, you know, so, again... um, Yeah, they're also more in tune to a lot of supernatural, I mean, superstitious stuff, I think, okay? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This, this subject always brings up a lot of controversy, a lot of questions. People want to hang on to the devil. They want him to be out there. They want to blame him. He's the cause of all this. I, I, I just think the Bible teaches otherwise. Again, I share with you today the whole thing of the destruction of these people. That was what happened at 8070. That was part of the judgment. It wasn't just against the Jews. It was against the gods who were ruling. Where does the thousand-year reign come in? Then Satan is released for a little while. Okay, 
I would go back in our archives and look up the message that Bob Cruikshank Jr. did on the millennium. He goes into great detail on that. We believe the thousand years is the 40-year transition period. Okay, you say, well, it says a thousand. How'd you get 40? Go back and listen to Bob. Bob does a great job. He spends an hour. He the best job you're going to hear on understanding that millennium period. Okay. All right. Someone asked a good question. How important is the book of Enoch for us to read? Oh, that's a hard question for me to answer. Here's why it's hard. Most Christians don't read their Bibles. They don't. And so I'm so reluctant to encourage you to read something that I know is not scripture but if you are a Christian who reads your Bible faithfully year after year through the, you know, through the Bible every year, that's primal, that's important, that's Christianity 101. You say you love God, get in the Word of God and learn it. But if you're doing that, I think it'd be beneficial. First Enoch especially. Okay, Again, because the writers of Scripture quote this, understand, I'll tell you, a lot of the pseudepigraphal works, they're worth reading. You'll understand why Scripture says this or that when you get a handle on these writings. The book of Adam and Eve, okay? Uh, just some good stuff that, you know, will make you think, wow, I never considered that before, you know? They talk about Adam after he's put out of the garden and the misery of his life separated from God. I mean, it makes you see, it makes you hate sin because, you know, it's not like Adam, oh, everything's wonderful, I got kicked out of the garden. No. He tries everything he can to get back in that garden unsuccessfully. From Bakersfield, Patrick, do you think men plot and align themselves against the kingdom of God like secret societies, Freemason, Illuminati? Yes, absolutely. And it's again, I don't think it's just against the kingdom of God. I think they do this for power and money. That's why they do it, Okay. Power. People want this power, so they join together. They want to, you know, rule over other men. He says, sounds to me like that is men's evilness and not from some evil spirit. I agree, but I think men just downplay the rottenness of man's heart. They just do. Okay? I'm confused when reading Scripture how to read Elohim. Is there a rule about the context to help me? No, but here's what I would tell you. Okay, when you look up Elohim, look up everything, and it's always referring to God or gods, or again, it's used of Samuel one time after he's dead. But I'm telling you, I think the simple rule to understanding Elohim is a place of residence locator. When someone's called an Elohim, they're not of this world, they're in the spirit world. Whether it be God, whether it be demons, whether it be other gods, whether it be dead men. Okay, to me, that's again, we, and we've got, if you go back um, into some of our scriptures, go back to the series we did in Ephesians 6 on spiritual warfare. There's like six, I don't know how many messages, there's a bunch of messages in there on this subject that I think will really help. If demons and devils were destroyed, who are Satanists worshiping today? You know, I talked about this in one of my messages. A lot of these Satanists will come out and openly admit they don't believe in Satan. They don't believe a, a spirit being. They just, they're worshiping what, they're doing what they want to do, basically. Okay? Aleister Crowley, he doesn't believe in a, you know, a demonic being. 
They're just crazy people. <laughs> okay? That's all I can tell you. All right? If persecuting Jews from Thessalonica and other faraway places traveled to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feast at Passover, as required under the law in AD 70, they may have perished in Roman siege, which would relieve the Thessalonian Christians from their persecution. Very true. Okay, did you get what he's saying there? I think that's really important. The Jews had to make a pilgrimage three times a year, the pilgrim feast. They had to go to Jerusalem to worship, okay? If these Jews going to Jerusalem to worship and God, boom, destroys Jerusalem while they're there worshiping, then guess what? Persecution stops because all these God, all these Christ haters just got wiped out in that destruction. That, I definitely think that's part of the scenario here. Thanks, Chris. Uh, okay, February 13th, no, okay, man, I got to straighten these texts out so I can tell when they're, Mike uh, Sullivan said, why would some preterists still believe there are demons today? To what text they have to support it? You don't need a text, Mike, come on, you can believe whatever you want, you don't need a text to back it up. Well, I don't know why they do, I I guess we're empirical, we look at it, we see there's bad, that's the devil, there's good, that's God. That's very relative, because to us, things that are good might be bad to somebody else, okay? Um, You know, and there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of sin in this world, and it is sickening, and, you know, I wish we had someone to blame it on, but man is just a mess. Yeah, and again, that's the thing, many people still believe we're in the last days, so we're still under Ephesians 6.12. We're still in a spiritual battle. Uh, hopefully preterists wouldn't believe that, but just a comment. Someone says, if there are no demonic spirits anymore, if. You mean sense? Is that a first, second class condition? People have no one to blame but themselves. Ah, yeah. Can't say it's not my fault. It's a demon or Satan. Thanks for all you do. Good point. Good point. You know, that that is so true. People want to have someone to blame for their sin. You know, and if you don't have a devil, then who do you blame? And so some people hang on to that, you know. And I've heard some of these charismatic teachers teach that, you know, they do something wrong and they'll say, that wasn't me. That demon overtook me. And I'm like, that is genius. I wish I'd have thought of that. You know, you have a fight with your wife and say, honey, and she's mad at you. What's wrong? That wasn't me. I wasn't even here today. That must have been that demon impersonating me again. And you're just off scot-free, right? No problem. Get away with it, whatever you want. You know, this, you know, Flip Wilson mentality of blaming the devil for everything. I remember sharing preterism with this couple. They had visited church for a while. We met with them. We're at, the, we're at a restaurant somewhere, and I'm sharing preterism. I'm going over this stuff. And I remember she's, you know, I could see her gears clicking. And so, so right away she goes, what about the devil? So she put it together, you know, well, if this happened, then what about that? I said, he's done, he's gone. Uh, that bothers people. Christ came back, okay, the devil's gone? No, I need my devil. Okay, so here's what happened. About three months later, this lady comes to me and she goes, I got to tell you, ever since that time and you told me the devil's gone, I, you ruined it for, I, because I had a lot of problems and I blamed it on Satan. She goes, and since I realized there's no devil, I had to deal with these myself, and things are much better now. Because I had to take personal responsibility for these things. Just stop blaming on somebody else. And she goes, I'm doing great. Thank you. 
Theology is so important to our daily lives, people. When you believe the truth, it makes a difference on how you live. Okay? That's very important. No, they don't. You know, I don't know how they don't because, you know, I think you have to lie to yourself. and so, Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just rotten. And, you know, that's why, you know. But I think to myself sometimes, listen, I, this is a, I'm bearing my soul here. But I spend all day, every day almost, studying the scripture, reading, digging, you know. And I have these evil thoughts and stuff. I'm thinking, how do most people get by when they don't hardly ever touch the scripture? You know, how do they do it? How do they how do they live in this world and not be consumed with the evilness of their heart? And it doesn't have to be planned. I mean, you just poke me at the wrong time and something comes out that I'm like, what was that? Right, honey? <laughs> that demon comes on you so quick, you don't have time to stop it. It just blurts out whatever it wants to. And no, no, we're responsible people. So let's take responsibility. All right, I'm going to close in prayer. We, we've been, sorry. Uh, I, uh. This is the longest one ever. Is it? Ever? No. I'm trying to set a new record for Guinness. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the privilege to come together to talk about your scriptures. Lord, I thank you for these questions. I, and I thank you for the people just sending comments, Lord, that, you know, that just are so insightful, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and talk about the scriptures, to reason through the scriptures together. Thank you for that great privilege, Lord, that we have in this country. I pray we'd never lose that. I pray we would stand up and fight for the freedoms we do have, Lord. Father, I pray that our theology would have an impact on our life. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. All right, now let me warn you, next week, it's going to be practical. Okay, so you might want to skip if that's a... Because <laughs> we're dealing, we're going to get down to, you know... Mind in other people's business, so to speak, because we're going to talk about the Thessalonians and how their beliefs affected the way they live. All right, thanks for being here, people. Have a great week. Thanks for watching. Those of you who are watching live, really appreciate being here. Thanks for all the questions. Really enjoyed it. Have a great week.